is the Bad Bridget podcast with Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormack, the podcast that goes behind the traditional emigrant success story to tell the hidden tales of women that history has chosen to forget. It shines a light on stories of crime and poverty, but also of survival, resistance and coping against the odds. These are the stories that help us understand the complex experience of migration, both in the past and today. So you should probably really lead on this podcast, Alien. Why? Because I'm the unmarried mother. <laughs> well, <laughs> you've mentioned it. But no, um, I, I was thinking because you'd written on this subject in oh, right, the yeah. 19th century Irish context. Okay, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, well, let's have the fantastic Siobhan McSweeney uh, get us started. Um, she's going to recount the story of one of our bad Bridgets. But heads up, it's a sad one. Boston was cold and wet in late April 1889. Catherine O'Donnell wandered the streets, having nowhere to go with her 12-week-old baby. She'd come to the city from Ireland the summer before, when she was around two months pregnant. She had given birth in hospital and convalesced for about a month afterwards. She secured a childminder after leaving hospital and Mrs Lyman at a cost of $2.50 per week. Mrs Lyman cared for the infant for about seven weeks, but Catherine was not able to keep up with the payments and had to take the baby away. She tried to make other arrangements but was refused assistance at the religious and charitable institutions that she tried. After wandering in the rain for two days, Catherine recalled that her infant died in her arms. She went to the police station to find out what she should do, but it was closed. She sat down, a forlorn figure in the doorway. She laid the baby on the ground. A man stopped her. Why did she not take the baby to her relatives, he asked. She admitted that she felt too ashamed. He gave her 25 cents to go to the city, reassuring her, Catherine claimed, that someone would find her baby and bury it. She was arrested the following day, while at work at the mill, on a charge of murder. Yeah, this is just an awful image, isn't it, of this poor woman alone at a doorstep no one to help her. I know. And and she's not the only Irish woman that we've come across who kind of found herself in this predicament. But there is more to this story, which I think makes it even sadder. Unknown to this man, Catherine O'Donnell came for money. Her father at home reportedly owned 200 acres. The putative father of her child was a bookkeeper also in Ireland. She had been educated in a convent, probably by the Sisters of Mercy, until she was 19 years old at a time when secondary education had to be paid for. She had three brothers, one a priest, and five sisters, all in Ireland. She was not alone in Boston and had an aunt and cousins in the city, but she felt too ashamed at having given birth outside marriage to seek help from them. Another version of events had Catherine O'Donnell leave her baby alive beside a bridge and when the tide came in, the infant was drowned. Certainly, the medical officer who later conducted a post-mortem examination of the body was adamant that the baby's death was caused by drowning. Whatever happened on that night, Catherine was described by the prison officials who received her as 
broken-hearted. She received a jail term of one year for manslaughter. Thanks, Siobhan. Um, it's a sad one. It's a tragic story, whatever happened. And, and that Catherine felt so alone and, and so ashamed that she didn't feel like she could get any help from her family who are actually on the on that side of the Atlantic with her. Yeah, I mean, it does really bring home the shame that was attached to legitimacy. You know, sometimes people think about the, the boat to England in the in the 20th century, about women going to have abortions or running away when they found out they were pregnant to give birth somewhere else where nobody knew them. But we have a lot of 19th century examples of this as well. Yeah, we do, because the New World offered unmarried women an opportunity to conceal unwanted pregnancies from their family at home. We have just give you a couple of examples. Cork-born Ellen Reardon, she gave birth to a daughter in Boston in 1877 and the father of her child was a fisherman in Dublin. And Catherine O'Donnell, who we've just met, admitted that she sought the shores of America to give birth to an illegitimate child, her lover in Ireland, deserting her. Yeah, exactly. And, And Maggie Tate, an Irish Protestant, she migrated to New York, she said, to cover her shame. And Maggie actually expected um, that the father of the child would come and join her. So he had said, when she had become pregnant, he, um, he had said, you know, you go to America first, I'll meet you there, we'll get married. But as far as we know, he never arrived and she ended up in an institute, having to get an institution to help her with her baby. It's just tragic, isn't it? And quite a journey to escape yeah. shame and stigma of giving birth outside marriage in Ireland. You know, this isn't just going across the Irish Sea, this is the Atlantic. Um, and probably some went with their family's permission or even encouragement. Sure. This mm-hmm. removed a problem mm-hmm. well out of sight. And then others will have left home without anybody knowing they were pregnant um, and, and maybe hoping that America would be more welcoming. For yeah, them. I, th- I think absolutely. And I think whatever they thought before they left, America actually was not all that liberal or not all that open-minded towards unmarried mothers and children born outside marriage, as suggested by loads of our stories. Um, give you an example, an Irish migrant, Winifred Ruan, she was impregnated by the son of her employer at a restaurant in Boston. So she lost her job as a waitress. She tried to find alternative work after her son was born, but she says in, that she failed in the attempt and she grew distur- discouraged. And she was actually then arrested for having deserted her child. Uh, they are so sad. And I think these stories as well show just how desperate these women are. They're mostly on their own. They're in a different country. And clearly they felt like there were there were no other options left to them. Absolutely. And another story that I think really shows all of that issues, um, all of those issues, is that of 16-year-old Rosie Quinn. Yeah. We actually know quite a lot about this case because she was found guilty of throwing her nine-day-old daughter into a reservoir at Central Park in New York in April 1903. And a number of people wrote to the governor of New York State after her conviction to appeal for her release. I mean, her situation really seems to have impacted on people, doesn't it? Um, you know, we have a, a Caroline Palmer who had been following the case, wrote to Governor O'Dell, and she said, my heart is so burdened for that poor, ignorant Irish girl, all alone in a strange country, deserted by her lover and friends, that I can't rest. And I suppose, you know, she, she um, she's very, Caroline is, is very sympathetic to, towards Rosie Quinn's plight, but, but I suppose that is the reality. Girls and women abroad often had to fend for themselves when they found themselves pregnant. Um, and another sympathetic letter writer, and Isaac Roth, he was um, a jury representative from her trial and he described Rosie Quinn as wretchedly poor, weakened by illness, disgraced in the eyes of the world, 
friendless and deserted. Her position was truly deplorable. And, and even her boss at the hotel where she worked wrote pleading for leniency. Uh, and she said that Rosie was unfortunate in meeting a man utterly without principle and being young in years and experience and without education fell an easy victim. In the minds of all who knew her, she was more sinned against than sinning. All of these descriptions, I suppose, when we look at them all together, they create this picture of this young, naive, this poor Irish girl away from home, no friends, no family. She's taken advantage of by maybe an older man. And whether this was actually the reality or the whole picture or not, we don't know. But Rosie was pardoned and she was she was released from prison in December 1904. So she had served 18 months of her life sentence. So clearly Rosie's story appears to have generated lots of interest and lots of sympathy after her conviction. So, Elaine, you're the expert on, on infanticide <laughs> in Ireland. So are, are these... What a title. Are these... <laughs> Are these stories and the cases that we have found as part of the Bad Bridget Project, are they are they similar to ones in Ireland? Would you see that kind of, of sympathy and, and sort of, in a sense, an understanding of, of this somebody's situation? Well, I suppose the, the stories from an Irish context, there, there are some similarities. So this idea of a woman scorned, she's been taken advantage of. Um, the, I suppose the women in Ireland maybe didn't, um, they did get sympathy, absolutely. Maybe not so much, um, maybe it's not quite so visible in terms of the public letter writing response that we see in the Rosie Quinn case, yeah. which is really astounding, yeah. the number of letters that come in. But certainly women in Ireland were, um, who found themselves in that predicament, were treated sympathetically. They were more often charged with concealment of birth rather than charged with murder, even when maybe that was, um, maybe when the evidence pointed more towards the murder. Okay, so there is, we can then see some sympathy even in what they're convicted for that perhaps courts do understand yeah. a bit about Yeah, the, and the even with um, even with in terms of the sentences, so so a murder crime would would result if the person was found guilty, they would be sentenced to death. But of the twenty nine women who were sentenced to death for infant murder between eighteen fifty and nineteen hundred, none of them were actually executed. Oh, okay. So there is some sympathy yeah. in terms of that the the hanging actually isn't carried yeah. into effect um, either. Um, and one of the other interesting things that that we have found and found some examples of Irish women been prosecuted for. Um, is also what's known as baby farming. Um, and, and this is where one person, often a woman, is looking after a number of children. Sometimes they've been paid weekly. Sometimes they, they were given a, a one-off lump sum by a mother. And we have this interesting case from Toronto where in, in 1898, Irish-born Elizabeth Malone claimed to have found a baby on, on a street corner. Um, and then two days later, the baby died from the effects of starvation. And when the police go round to the house and investigate, they find that she has quite a lot of other babies at her house and, and that she had found three other babies on street corners in the past nine months. So all this, so it's kind of suspicious, I suppose. And, and her husband also claimed um, to have found babies on the doorstep. So the evidence in, in the case suggests she had operated what would be called a baby farm um, for some time at various addresses um, in the city. And the Toronto Globe headlined a report about this case um, as slaughter of the innocents. And, and this idea of a baby farm, um, Sarah Ann Buckley has, has published on this in an Irish context, kind of looking at, at how this, I suppose, this kind of childcare as well um, operated in Ireland. Yeah, so essentially this woman is is sort of as sort of childminder, she's taken on yeah. children and then they're dying in her care. And it's it's yeah. the, it's what happened, whether that's sort of deliberate neglect or or just it's overcrowding or what other 
factors are at play here. Or, or if actually that was the purpose. So if that was the goal, it's was de- for that the baby to die. Deliberate. And, and there is an example where they do say that, that the claim about Elizabeth Malone in court was that she would take a baby for $5 and that she guaranteed that the mother would never have to see it again. And, and that, I suppose, tells us something about extreme roots that some mothers who are generally unmarried would go to and how they felt that they couldn't keep a baby. This was this was one way to, to get out of this terrible situation. Yeah. And I mean, there were other options for women who found themselves pregnant or or with a child um, outside marriage. And I suppose for, for the women who found themselves pregnant, there's obviously abortion. Yeah. There is, and although that that relies on you having some money, some networks, yeah, and able to true. find out about it. Um, but we are really fortunate to be able to speak to the brilliant professor Cara Delay from the College of Charleston in South Carolina, who's written both about Irish women and abortion in the nineteenth century and twentieth century, and also about women's reproduction in the United States. I asked Cara to tell us about abortion in Ireland and the US, particularly in terms of the numbers. When we study abortion history, it's impossible to talk in any meaningful way about statistics. Most abortions, because they were illegal, occurred in secrecy and thus remain hidden from us today. As far as we can tell, though, abortion in both the US and in Ireland in the 19th and 20th centuries was pretty common. We know more about the 20th century because of the available evidence, which mainly consists of surviving court documents. In both Ireland and the United States, abortion was criminalized in the late 19th century. So after that, prosecutions began to make their way into court systems. I asked Cara to comment on how abortions were carried out at this time. There were a variety of methods that were known to many women including inserting a syringe or rubber tube into the uterus or using a sharp instrument to perforate and scrape out the uterus. What most women seemed to prefer, however, was to consume things called amenagogues or abortifacients, substances that you take by mouth to induce miscarriage. These could include herbal treatments, potions, or pills that were manufactured at the time. So it seems that most women first chose to take an abortifacient. If that was not successful, however, women could move on to other more invasive procedures. Unmarried women facing unwanted pregnancies seem to have resorted to instrumental procedures more commonly than married women. I asked Cara if she could say a little bit about the dangers attached to abortions. Illegal illicit abortion could in fact be dangerous, and women were very much aware of these dangers. We can't know how dangerous procedures were because, again, we don't have accurate statistics. And today we mostly know only about those cases in which something went wrong, hemorrhage, infection, or poisoning from abortifacients. Successful abortions without complications didn't make their way into the historical record. It's important to note, however, that we do think that many abortions were successful and without complications. That said, for those women who faced complications, their conditions could be serious, even resulting in death, which was caused mostly because of infections after instrumental procedures. And finally, I asked Cara to comment on who had abortions at this time. Evidence suggests that women in Ireland and the U.S. from all walks of life had some access to abortion. We have examples describing the experiences of young women, middle-aged women, married women, single women, women with lots of previous children, women with no children, women from rural areas and from cities. One pattern seems to be that in cities like New York for the U.S. or Dublin or Belfast in Ireland, Most illegal abortions were accessed by unmarried women who were working class or middle class. 
not necessarily the poorest of the poor, because you had to have some connections and, of course, some resources to get an abortion, which was definitely going to cost you not only money, but some time off from work. I mean, Cara's doing really fascinating work here. And, and the other thing side of this as well, that is as well as abortion, women could also give up babies and children for adoption and fostering. And this is something we see really frequently in the records as well. Again, these situations where women just couldn't manage to care for children on their own. And I mean, the cost of childcare, like, like, let's think about that in terms of salaries too. You know, like today even, um, childcare is sometimes just totally unaffordable, um, especially for women who are on their own. So it's when, you know, they're relying on only themselves. Childcare cost around $3.50 a week on average in Boston in 1871, which was actually the exact same as the typical servant's wage. So how was a woman working as a servant for, for $3.50 supposed to pay childcare that, that equated to that? Yeah, I mean, it just isn't possible. And probably as well, if you're on your own and you've got a baby, you're not even going to be able to get employment. Definitely not as a domestic servant. Who's no. going to want you in their house along with your baby? You're not yeah. going to be able to do your job. No, I mean, they'll want you to be working hard and not, not taking care of your baby at the same time. And of course, these struggles, I mean, they're not specific to unmarried mothers. Um, we do have evidence of married women as well, um, you know, on their own sometimes and, and struggling. And um, Margaret Hines, she was 23 when she was found wandering the streets in New York. She was found weeping bitterly. Um, and the record says shivering with the cold. She was carrying a dead baby. And she thought her husband, John, who was a sailor, um, and she'd emigrated with her husband three years earlier. She thought he had deserted her because she couldn't, you know, he had, had not returned. Um, she tried to get a job, but she said that she just couldn't because she was, she had this baby. So exactly what you have said. Yeah, it's just tragic, isn't it? And she's, she's on her own. She clearly didn't have any support network to help out. She didn't know where to go or what to do other than wander the streets. Um, I mean, there were organisations, of course, which did take in mothers and children, but often these are these were very full. And, and as we know, they may not necessarily have been the most welcoming of places. Yeah, or maybe they had some kind of agenda, you know, like we talked about um, when we were looking at in our podcast on sex work, you know, this idea that that they're they're trying to reform women and maybe these women didn't necessarily feel like they had done anything wrong that they needed to be ashamed of. Um, and we have a great record from the New York Society for the Aid of Friendless Women and Children. Um, and they refer to an unmarried Irish mother, Mary McPatter. And they say that she, that she had arrived to the, the home um, and she had told them, and I quote, there's no harm about her if she was not married. And they described her as a bold, impertinent girl. I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? When you see those occasional moments of women standing up for themselves and saying, yeah. going against this kind of prevailing opinion that they should be ashamed. They should feel very bad about their situation and they should feel very grateful for any help that they get. Um, I think clearly she she was expected to be ashamed and, and she wasn't. And yeah. she quite, and they obviously though do, one of the questions was whether or not she was married. It wasn't on conditional help. There were, there were probably circumstances that were taken in whether you were deserving or not of it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, that's, I think that's a great one whenever you see that. 
Yeah, and and we really have to remember that that married couples too are using these institutions. Married couples are also giving their children up for adoption, leaving them in places as a survival strategy too. So so this isn't you know we're not talking here about this kind of cold hearted abandonment. You know this is sometimes this kind of family survival strategy, a way to a way to survive. So maybe to give children up to be able to get back on their feet, maybe to find a job, save some money. Um, you know this comes out very clearly in a case that we have um, of one family, the Summers family, where three children, all of them under the age of four, um, were admitted to the Toronto Orphanage in August 1882. And it was said that the parents had had recently arrived from Ireland and can't get employment. So the three children, three very young infants, um, are left with the orphanage. And, and around six weeks later, the parents come back and collect the children. So they're now clearly in a stronger position to take responsibility for, the, for their offspring. And I suppose then what we are saying is that it, it's really those who are without family or friends who who aren't in a couple like like the the summers to to offer they've got nobody to offer a support network or it's people like Catherine O'Donnell who maybe did have family but they're too ashamed because they've given birth outside of marriage to ask for help and they're the the group of people who really struggled I mean there's a bit more sympathy for those who are widowed or deserted than for the unmarried mother and and for so many then they made the choice to separate themselves from their offspring, whether that's through desertion or infanticide or or through institutions. And those stories, like they're really often quite hard yeah, to read, I think. You know, you can feel the desperation sometimes of these individuals. You can feel that desperation coming through the pages. These these women who felt they had no options left. Um, you know, like imagine what it must have been like for them being so far from home as well. And I suppose this is something that hasn't has it changed that being on your own and trying to bring up children without support and help is incredibly hard. Finding a job, finding childcare, affording childcare are not easy at the best of times. But if you're alone and you're away from home and you're not near family, you know, this this is even harder. Yeah. And, and I suppose you can see why so many of our bad bridges in those kind of lived realities then turn to alcohol, this, you know, trying to drown their sorrows. And that brings us on to the topic for our next podcast. Yes, come join us next time to hear about the demon drink and bad Bridget. And bring a drink with you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. And if you would like to give us a five star rating, it helps other people find us. This Bad Bridget podcast was funded by Queen's University Belfast and Ulster University. Written and presented by Leanne McCormick and Elaine Farrell. Edited and produced by Colm Heatley at Queen's University Belfast. Consultation provided by Alan Hall and with special thanks to Siobhan McSweeney and Cara DeLay. Original artwork by Ashley Neal, PhD cartoon. Original music by Francisca Schroeder and Katrina Gribben. And additional post-production provided by John Darcy.